when you choose to live as remotely as I do, you know, there are some, there are some costs and risks that you voluntarily assume. For instance, uh, first aid help might not be on the way right away. So you have to really practice some basic first aid skills, such as Heimlich maneuvers, stopping bleeding, um, you know, getting somebody so they can't hurt themselves if they've had uh, any kind of a spinal type injury, you know, that sort of thing, as well as being, you know, being able to protect yourself in the event that there's somebody that wishes you harm. Again, that c- it could take about an hour for a law enforcement to arrive. Welcome to the Canning Plus 7 podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams. I know I haven't done a podcast in a long time. However, I've just been very busy. But I think this is a very educational podcast. Suzanne C. Sherman was my guest. As you know, she's been on here a few times. And we talked about a very dramatic experience. She had a fire on her property. It didn't burn her house, but it came awfully close. And you'll hear all about it. We'll talk about the miracles that happened. Yes, because both her and I are Christians. We believe in miracles. And the miracles definitely happened. You can call them serendipity, whatever you want. I choose to call them miracles. And we talk about insurance. And you know something, folks? Home insurance companies are not all that they're cracked up to be. We'll definitely talk about that. Not that it's bad. You need to have home insurance, but know what you're getting into. We talk all about that in this podcast. Oh, by the way, my email is down. Something's going on with ProtonMail. Some of you know that I am a blind person, and ProtonMail just does not work with screen reading technology right now. So the best way to get a hold of me is on Facebook. The way that you can do that is go to Facebook and do a search on Canning, C-A-N-N-I-N-G, the plus sign, the number 7. So Canning plus 7. You can send me a private message over there on Facebook. And that's the best way to get a hold of me for right now. I'm hoping to make some changes on this podcast soon. I'm hoping somewhere in between November and January. In the meantime... Sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of the Canning Plus 7 podcast. It is the Canning Plus 7 podcast. I know we haven't done a podcast in a long time, and that's because I have been very busy, and so have you, Suzanne, haven't you? Yeah, I've been pretty exciting around here. (laughs) We got plenty to talk about. Uh, Suzanne, where do you want to go first? You want to talk about your, and by the way, before we get started, I know that this is canning plus seven. I know that we talk about politics. We talk about canning, preparation, other ways of food storage, farming, ranching, homesteading, and those kind of things. That's why it's canning plus seven other topics. But I think sometimes it's good that we talk about some of the dramatic experiences that preppers go through. Because not everything's perfect, is it, Suzanne, especially living out in the country? No, exactly. And when you choose to live as remotely as I do, you know, there are some there are some costs and risks that you voluntarily assume. For instance, uh, first aid help might not be on the way right away. So you have to really practice some basic first aid skills, such as Heimlich maneuvers, stopping bleeding, um, you know, getting somebody so they can't hurt themselves if they've had uh, any kind of a spinal type injury, you know, that sort of thing, as well as being, you know, being able to protect yourself in the event that there's somebody that wishes you harm. 
again, that it could take about an hour for a law enforcement to arrive where where I live. And as I experienced uh, <laughs> over Labor Day weekend, it took a significant amount of time for a fire to show up when a fire broke out on my property. I do want to explain, though, this was not an example of a failing on my part, as we'll get into. We'll discuss the uh, the cause of the fire, but it was a massive one. And what I've been telling people on my podcast, so when I make appearances, you know, when it comes to fire, you fall into two categories. Either it hasn't happened to you yet or, you know, it, it does. And this Labor Day weekend, I unfortunately went from the former category to the latter. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's get into that. Uh, the let's get into the fire. What happened? And this podcast is going to be a little bit different. Usually, it's Q and A. We're going to have some of that, but I'm just going to let you tell your story, and then I'll ask you questions. How does that sound? Yeah, that's great. You know, right, getting started. I, I I I live in a very narrow canyon. That's I'm in between a lot of pasture land and a lot of sagebrush. And as summer comes to an end and we start heading into fall, everything around here is very dry. My biggest fear and my only reason to ever have to evacuate this property has been in case of a wildfire. Taking that risk into account, I manage my property accordingly. For instance, I have a perimeter where the brush is down or I have gravel around my homestead. I keep the trees, you know, I do have a couple spruce trees that are beautiful that are closer to my house than they should be. Cost benefit analysis, what's the risk, you know, that sort of thing. And I've, I've chosen to leave some of those there because that's also in an area unlikely to catch fire. It's green grass that I keep short. So I do have also tall grass and fields on my property and that I, the areas that I am able to access with a mower, I keep mowed. And I can't help but think, you know, my neighbors probably think I'm crazy, you know, mowing my field, but I'm doing it not just because it looks great, but also it would slow down a fire if we did have a fire on our property. And as things turned out, essentially had I not done so, the fire that we had in my backfield would have reached my house. I was able to buy myself some time and uh, that saved it. That and the fact that uh, about three weeks previous, we'd had some mon monsoon type rains here, which got the grass all nice and green again. My, my fortune was somebody else's uh, tragedy because it destroyed their house with a mudslide down the road from me. You know, you just take what you can get out here. But in this instance, uh, the forces of nature did work in my favor. Yeah. So tell us about uh, one of the things that stuck out to me in your story is that when you realized there was a fire, we're going to get into this too, but when you realize that there was a fire, you mentioned the fact that it's hard to reach for your cell phone sometimes because it might be on the charger. And I think, I think you were close to your cell phone. I don't believe your phone was on the charger at that time, if I recall. But let me yeah, ask this you- is Go oh, ahead. oh, well, let, Go ahead. Let, me, let me ask you this. Um, have you thought now that you've had your experience with the fire and I thought about this, too. Have you thought about getting a traditional landline along with your cell phone in case something like this happens again? Because I've always been under the belief that it's good to have both a traditional landline and a cell phone. You don't have to have all the bells and whistles on your landline, just something to call out in case 
the towers go down because that's actually happened to me before. Thank goodness I had a landline. Yeah, redundancy is key. And I do, in fact, have a landline. When oh. I first moved here, I, I found a sweet spot on my porch where I could sit. And I thought, wow, I'll just make my calls from here. Well, I moved here in Memorial Day in 2013. Then I realized, you know, I'm probably not going to want to sit on this porch in, say, December or January and chat with anybody. So I did end up getting a landline. And like you said, no bells, no whistles, no messages, no call waiting, no you know, caller ID or anything that just, just to get out in case I need to. And one thing I always tell people have it in the charger at all times in case of an emergency, you know, mine's sitting here next to me on the desk right now, in case I have to hang up right away, in case I'm, you know, get a call when I'm recording. But, you know, one thing I realized my kids were here and guess where they don't put it back. Fortunately, the one that was close by when we discovered the fire was charged and I had difficulty getting out because of the fire. I don't know what it was, but I had to make a couple attempts to call. The call dropped, but by the time the call dropped, I was able to let them know that we had a massive fire and there were explosions on the property. And then uh, we had another friend drive up the road and then also call when he could get a, a cell phone signal as well. So yeah, it's, it's very scary if you're having something like this and then communications fail. So redundancy, make sure your phones are charged. The other thing is when uh, we'll get to it in a little while, but when I had to move the vehicles, the last thing you want to have to do is, is um, search for your car keys if you have to evacuate quickly. So I've always had all my keys on hooks by my front door, every vehicle, every tractor, you know, farming implement has its own hook because you do not want to dig for those in an emergency. Now, clearly, if you're evacuating to save your life as opposed to your equipment, which I was fortunate enough to have that be my issue, uh, you'd get nothing. The number one rule of, of survival is get out of the way. Oh, absolutely. Now, when you tried to make that call to 911, I, did you make the first attempt on your uh, landline and then it didn't work? And then you No, I made, the, I, I made the attempt on my land. Oh, yeah, I made the attempt on my landline because I okay. knew I could get out quicker. Yeah, that, landlines always quicker, you know, and the cell phones, you, it uh, always seems to take a little bit longer. I made that call. I got the connection through. I had to call a couple times. One of the SOs, the sheriff officers that came out here, uh, he was a little angry. He said, you scared me to death. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, all I heard you tell me was there was a big explosion, a fire and a big explosion. And then you hung up. I said, I didn't hang up on you. The line went dead. But he was a little annoyed with me. And it was... You know, it was interesting to see the fear in him and in his voice and in his eyes. And you realize, you know what? It really mattered to him. He didn't want to come upon a scene where there could be severe casualties. You know, at the end of the day, he's going home. He's safe. But it does show that they they do care and they do want to help. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I like what you said about having your keys with you at all times. The other thing that I learned is gas up your vehicles. Make sure they're yes. all gassed up and make sure that they're ready to go. I, I, I know in the podcast you said that you had a Subaru and a truck ready to go. And yep. not only were they ready to go, but you were able to have a you were able to get out of the way, as you said, you were able to have, I, I assume you drove the truck or something and somebody else drove the Subaru or whatever, but you were able to figure out where to go in case things got really bad. 
Yeah, we had everything out of the way. The interesting thing is, we'll get into it, but the start of the fire took place in my motor home, which incidentally was, that was my bug out vehicle in the event of a wildfire. So it was fully tanked up with gas. It was full of propane and it was uh, an electrical fire. We'll get into that later again, uh, started. And the first thing my older son heard was, and we had just had guests arrive so he was busy with them. He heard it and he thought maybe it was like a low frequency sound similar to that we hear when our neighbors have a livestock trailer that goes over a bump, something like that. And then just seconds later, my younger son started screaming about smoke and we went out there and my barn was just an inferno. So that's when we got on the phone, started calling for help. We had our friends on the cell phone. Everybody that could, could get out was on their phones just in case there was an issue. Remember redundancy. You can't, you're not, there's no problem if there's a massive fire, if three people call, you know, for help. So everybody was calling for help. We're watching this happen. It was in the back of the barn. And then I started noticing my son yelled, it's in the chicken coop, which was about 70 feet closer to the house than the barn. And when that went up and, and my son ran up when the first flames got to it and opened the door and all but three of the birds in the back coop made it out alive from there. And from that point, we had a probably 30 to 40 foot wall of flames within a hundred feet of our house. And now the sheriffs are arriving. One of these state troopers connected some hoses and he's trying to hose off the area between the home. And we have a bridge separating the two properties because we have a creek there. <clears throat> so he's doing that. And my first, my first instinct, once we knew help was on the way, once we'd made the call, and once I saw that big wall of fire was, I, I honestly wanted to just curl up in a ball and suck my thumb. And I thought, okay, I've got to get something else. I've got to save what I can, grab the car keys, move the vehicles, move the tractor, move my Ranger and put all that on the green grass facing the driveway, you know, exit in case we need to just get them out of there. And um, then we, then we waited. I grabbed one basket of clothing out of my closet and my laptop computer. That would be my portal to reach out to bank insurance and family and everybody else. And I took a look around me at all the stuff I treasured. And I said, if I start trying to pick and select things now, I will never stop. You know, if you have a hurricane and you're evacuating and you have some time, have a, have a plan. If you want to evacuate, what's, what's going to be important to you. And if you live in an area where that's likely to happen, or again, you know, you have a few days notice, get it staged, get it ready. When we're talking fire or tornado or massive earthquake, you don't have that luxury. So have what you can ready um, and, then, and then get out. I looked at all these things that I treasured and I had my laptop and, and the, the basket I had was my gym clothes. And I figured everything else I can replace. So I put it in the car and as I was running up to the car, I was just praying and praying and praying for God to please please spare my home all the while giving thanks that <clears throat> the worst didn't happen and we hadn't been in the motorhome at the time or that I hadn't parked the motorhome right next to my house because it was scheduled to go in for service and a safety inspection that Wednesday, the fire happened on a Sunday. Typically what I do when I'm gonna take the motorhome away is, is stage it by my house where I pack it up and get it you know, stored up with food and supplies and I decided not to. The day before the fire, I took it in my backfield 
and clear and cleaned the tanks. They were already empty, but it was going to have some work done with the toilet, replacing gaskets and that sort of thing. So I just put some non-toxic uh, cleaner in there, flushed it out, emptied it. And then as I'm parking, I thought, should I park in front of the house? And then something said, put it in the barn. I parked it in the barn. Had I not parked it in the barn, I would uh, I would be living in my barn and not have my house. So fortunately, my house was spared. Uh, it didn't happen when we were asleep. It happened when we were home. So it was the best case of every scenario. Had it happened at night, we might not have heard or been alerted to the fire until it reached our propane tanks, which are close to the house. So um, it was miraculous. A lot of things had to go right for none of us to uh, be victims of the fire or for us to lose the home. I want to back up to something that you said that I want to ask you a question. This may be a strange question, but how do birds and chickens act in the coop when there's a fire? Obviously, I'm sure that they were relieved to get out. Were they unusually making unusually high-pitched noises or what? I couldn't even hear that over the roar of the fire. That's what was so crazy was how loud the fire was. First of all, I had some camping propane tanks in there. Those were going off. There were some shotgun shells. Those were probably going off. And then there was the roar of the fire itself, which was very loud. And when the fire reached the top part of the chicken coop one side, he said, I'm going to open the door. And I screamed at him not to because I got to try. So they, once that door was open, they ran out. Some of them went into a full panic, but they were going on the wrong side of the door that opened inward and kept hitting the fence. And as they were flying, panicking, there were three of them. You just saw a wall of fire, just engulfed them. And that was horrific. We had young uh, family with younger boys that were visiting and they witnessed that. And it was, it was pretty terrible. Um, you know, so the animals, honestly, and then I have a coop closer to the house. I didn't even think to let them out so they could possibly escape. We were just pretty much convinced we would stop it from getting to this part of the house. And honestly, I didn't want any of the fire or anybody having to deal with trying to get around birds that were panicking. We were 100% focused on extinguishing the fire and stopping it from spreading to the neighboring properties, wilderness areas, you know, containing it, and most important to our house. Yeah, the other thing that I heard you talk about in your podcast is you were camping a few weeks prior to this. Yeah. And what if, gosh, what if that fire went off then, which we'll get into later. There's a reason I'm bringing it up now. Do you feel, and I don't want to get too religious on you here, but we're both Christians. I have a basic belief. I, I, I assume that you do since you spent your time praying about this. Do you feel that there, as bad as things were, obviously, let's not make light of this, but do you feel that there were miracles along the way? Absolutely. It was miraculous, first of all, that we weren't camping in it. And in that case, the best case scenario would have been my younger son and I. What happened when we got there, it was very hot. We were going to a go-kart race in Grand Junction, Colorado. I've never had an issue with the, with the AC. We got there to hook up. It was extremely hot and uh, the, the AC wasn't working. So we ended up staying there and my younger son ended up sleeping down in the small, in the lower part. Cause we could get some windows open and the part above the cab, it would have been too hot for the two of them to sleep in there. 
had we woken up in time, my son and I might have gotten out from the emergency window by that bed. But my older son, I, I just imagined that we were standing out there watching that thing incinerate him, knowing my son was in there. And this is the first time I've been able to say that without just breaking down in tears. It was very traumatic. So that would have been the absolute worst case scenario. And the other would have been, it would have gone off when we were camping somewhere and destroyed other people's property and, and put other people in danger. And the other one would have been, it would have gone off at night on my property, next worst, or it would have gone off next to the house or when we were asleep or when none of us were here and I wouldn't have even had a chance to call for help and I would have lost absolutely everything on my property. My neighbors might have called, they probably would have called uh, help in time because they were here before help even arrived and they had probably called it in. But my neighbor showed up and goes, what can I do? I said, I have no idea. And as my son's standing there, there's a picture on my Facebook page of him before this wall of flames and two empty buckets that had have water on them. You know, he said, hey, should I be doing anything, Neil? As he's just watching and my neighbor goes, nope. And at that point, you are absolutely powerless to do anything at all. So yes, absolutely, God played a role in this because everything that could have happened wrong didn't. The only scenario where this worked out was the way it did. We were home. We saw it. We saw it immediately. We got help. And right as I, we, um, the state trooper gave the order, evacuate, 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 I'm just like I said, praying, please save the home. And we literally had maybe a minute before it caught the bush that would have just propelled it across over to our to my house. So oh my they gosh. arrived just in time. Yeah, it, it was that close. We're talking a minute. It could have gone either way. And had they not gotten here when they did, I wouldn't have a house to broadcast from right now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's. Wow, that's a miracle in and of itself. One thing that you mentioned here on the podcast, and I do want to elaborate on it a little bit, is you mentioned that you're constantly mowing your grass. You don't just have to mow your grass, though. You've got to make sure that the sagebrush, the sagebrush is cut. And I don't know how that would work when some people's property is right next to the BLM, and sometimes the BLM gets a little touchy-feely about that. But if it's your own property... Yeah, I don't I don't have sage on my property. I'm in an area that has a lot of it. It's mostly on the hills, but okay. this area has been farmed and it's been used for raising cattle. So whatever sage was maybe in the canyon, the flat part of it is long gone, but it is up on the hills. And had there not been a, a trail going along the hill above my house, it would have marched right up the hill. So fortunately that, that stopped the fire and then they got some bulldozers to make that even bigger but it did affect, it started to go up the hill, but they were able to keep it from going out of control. Fortunately, there is nobody that lives up above or even on the other side, but then you start getting into really expensive costs to contain the fire and they were able to oh, fortunately yeah. get to it before any of that happened. So we had North Summit County fire working on my property and then uh, state fire working on the um, lands above it, you know, the, the, that spread to my neighboring property. Fortunately, their houses were never in danger and and uh, nothing else was put at risk but our own place yeah well that yeah you were safe now i do know something i went to somebody's house i don't want to mention the location but it was in utah 
near the point of the mountain, and they told me that they had a whole bunch of rocks out in front in case there's a wildfire or wild fire. There we go. A wildfire. Mm -hmm. Do you think that 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 just seemed weird to me at the time? Now that I listen to your podcast, do you think there was wisdom in that? I know you probably don't know the area. I'm just hesitant to give the location without their permission. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I think if you can do it, you should have 30 feet of clearance with no no brush around your home of, of gravel and nothing else. Zero scaping, you know, around there that also conserves water and it'll keep a fire from marching right up to your house. On top of that, I was I would also have fireproof or fire resistant siding to your house. And mine doesn't. I've been trying to get somebody to come out here and give me a quote to recite it for a couple of years now. And with the supply chain issues and labor issues, it hasn't happened. But my place has one by fours on the outside. And this would have gone up, you know, <laughs> really fast had it gotten here. So what I what do I do? Again, compensation. I have gravel, I have sand all around there. And the one part that does have grass coming up to the house, it's actually a lawn and it's always green. And I keep that obviously very short. So that part has, you know, the least amount of risk to my house. And this place has been here for uh, going on 40 years, never an issue. And again, the main issues that I was concerned of would be a wildfire, most likely due to dry lightning in very dry grass. And that's never happened to this property. What happened here, was a manufactured defect. It was an electrical um, issue on a motorhome that's known to uh, Ford Motor Company. So we did everything right, and uh, because of that, you know, we were over, we were able to overcome, you know, something that we couldn't control. I want to get into the motorhome issue, but I want to ask you if you know the answer to this question. What is some good siding to put on your home for those people that live out in the middle of nowhere, such as you? And uh, do you have any recommendations of siding? Yeah, I'd actually been asking that. Whatever there, there are many types of brands out there. What you want to look for is, you know, a brick is fantastic. Brick is awesome. And you also want to have a roof that's rated. You want uh, level uh, class A rating, which is the highest. And there are some materials that I've looked like, they're like some concrete um, fiberglass composites that are uh, rated for to withstand an hour of intense heat. So even the other sidings that are fire resistant, you have to be careful because a fire can still get the bolts hot enough to get the wood on the inside uh, to catch fire, which happened to a friend of mine's cabin in, in um, the Sierra Nevadas, where they have the tall trees all around them and it got very hot, the bolts got, you know, got hot and that set the, the house on fire. So optimally like a concrete house, a, a um, steel house, I love the steel buildings, brick and that sort of thing. Other than that, you wanna look towards the composites, you wanna have a roof that's rated A, uh, for fire protection. That means firefighters will go on it if they need to. And, it'll, and as an example of how important this was, the fire that we had in the barn where the motorhome was melted my RV. There was absolutely nothing left of the shell. Only thing that you could find was a little bit of the chassis and the cab was completely, completely burned out. And the engine block, which my son who's into uh, cars thought maybe he could salvage, it was melted. It was an extremely hot fire. 
What was undamaged in the fire, we found a pile of it out, was extra shingles used to uh, put on, on the construction of the roof on this house. So that is what you want to get. And that was an asphalt type, uh, type roof. And uh, it, it, we were absolutely delighted because there, there were shingles on there that you could not even tell had been on fire and they were right in the barn work. It was, you know, again, very, very hot fire. You couldn't even tell they'd been through it. Oh, wow. That's, that's great. Now, there are people, I don't want to get off too, too much off topic because I really want to get into the, the investigation. And if we have time, we'll talk about your future plans. I did a podcast with somebody a few months ago who has a place called Monticello College where they have a Libra Arts education. One of the things that they learn to do is build a house out of hay. Maybe you've heard of this or, or not. Basically, I guess the way I understand it is you build the frame out of hay and then you put everything else in it, the sheetrock, insulation, whatever. And it's supposed to make it so that your house is very well insulated from the heat and the cold. But I asked him about fire and he said that if you build it right, I'm paraphrasing, but if you build it right out of hay, then it's very fire resistant. Do you know anything about this given your investigation? Maybe you don't, but maybe it's, it's worth putting out there for those that. I think I've, I've seen houses like that. They almost, um, it rings a bell. Would I want to do it? I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not looking for something like that. And, uh, you know, hats off to those that build them, their houses like that. And if they say that it is fire resistant, then um, I take their word for it. For me, I, I consider hay to be tinder yeah, and kindling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the other thing too that I didn't ask this guy that I learned about later is hay shrinks. That means your ceiling would sh shrink, your roof, your walls. So I don't want to get too off topic. I just wondered, maybe you investigated that given your situation that you're in now. Let's get into the manufacturing issue, though, and what caused this fire. And then let's talk about your future plans if we have time. So what exactly do you think was the cause of this fire? I did listen to a little bit of that podcast on the Wasatch Report, which is a different podcast that she does. What we're talking about right now is the Red Hot Chili Prepper. I believe it was podcast number 60, correct? That you talked about your incident with the home? Yeah, it was podcast number 60. The Wasatch Report, I believe it's the latest one, isn't it? Podcast number 84. Yeah, yeah. No. And, and uh, direct links to both of those can be found on my website. It's Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, yes. -N -N -E C, the letter C, Sherman, S-H-E-R-M-A-N. So it's Suzanne C. Sherman. Dot com. Don't just do Suzanne Sherman. That'll take you to some liberal ghostwriter in California. <laughs> oh, no. Suzanne. Yeah, SuzanneCSherman.com. And you'll find a link to all four of my books as well as uh, the two podcasts. Take you right over to Anchor FM. And if they choose to support the page there, that always helps. But that'll get you right to them. And, and we do have the most recent shows uploaded. Is that why you did Suzanne C. Sherman is because Suzanne yes. Sherman? Oh, okay. <laughs> yep, that's exactly why. And she has a website as well. And I heard about her before because just digressing momentarily, we got all day. Um, there was a World War II veteran and I had befriended him on Facebook and he was looking for somebody to help him rewrite a book that he had done with somebody else on PTSD and he wanted it re kind of tuned up for a re-release on Kindle. 
And he sent me a message. I hear you're a ghostwriter and a darn good one, blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, who is he thinking of? So I just, you know, did a search on her name. And I said, that that's not me, but I do have some writing experience and I'd be happy to help you. So yeah, she's still around. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> now you've got me curious. <laughs> anyway. Well, so yeah, so I'll link to that website as well, SuzanneCSherman.com. And yep. you can check out all of the podcasts. Great information up there too. <laughs> yeah, let's get back to the fire though. What what do you think caused it? And where are you on this investigation? Well, obviously at the time we couldn't even think clearly. We were in survival mode, get help, stop the fire from spreading to the house. And then when the firefighters were here, I was talking to a, a sheriff's deputy as well as the uh, fire chief that were doing the investigation. Uh, let me do a disclaimer. Uh, my lawyer is showing, I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> I usually tell people to never, ever talk to law enforcement, never talk to police, never, ever, never, ever, ever, ever. I wanted to know what happened here. I knew we had done nothing wrong. I'm also a former criminal defense attorney, so I know how to talk to them. But I would advise anybody other, you know, under these circumstances, you could, I, I, if, if it weren't me, I would say, I will talk to the fire chief. I will not talk to law enforcement unless until I've spoken with a lawyer or even say, but you know, again, you always have that stigma. Well, what are they hiding? So fortunately, with my skills, I was able to talk to them. I mean, there's nothing that we could have said that would have incriminated us, but there was one thing that they did hone in on, which was uh, very unfortunate and discriminatory, and we'll get into that as well. But I was telling them exactly what we had done, what I told you, how I had cleaned it the day before. And I said, did I do something wrong? You know, did I, I'm asking, did I, I know I turned the auxiliary batteries on. Um, did I leave the pump on? No, we, you know, cause I used the pump to pump all the water out from the freshwater tank into the black water so we could get, you know, it completely dry. It was gonna be winterized. Uh, did I leave the battery on? Did I leave the pump on? But that should still be fail safe. That shouldn't start a fire. I left it disconnected. It wasn't plugged in. Everything seemed good to go. I uh, made sure the thermostats were both in the off position. And I'm telling them all this because I'm saying, I'm, and I, and I told the sheriff, I said, I tell people I never speak to police officers and nobody should. I'm a former criminal defense attorney. I am being very open with you because I want, I, I really want to know how this started. I'm hoping something I tell you will have you say, that's it. That's what caused the fire. Cause as I said, I'm terrified. I don't know what caused it. So we gave them all the information. And I also said, you know, they wanted to know what everybody was doing at the time said I was in the kitchen getting, you know, drinks and, and food out for my guests, my guests, here's another thing going back to everything that was miraculously coming out, right? Yeah, I had originally invited my friends to come over at three o'clock that afternoon, it was 100 degrees and miserable. So I texted my girlfriend and said, Hey, come at five o'clock instead. She came at three, she never saw the text. Had she seen that my boys and I probably would have been inside, staying out of the heat, probably would have been listening to music or watching TV. My son would not have been where he could see the smoke. My other son wouldn't have heard it. So that's like miracle 350 you know, wow. in yeah, this event of how things point out. 
Yeah, so my older son and the other kids were putting out together a little slip and slide thing. Cause again, it was over a hundred degrees here, of course. And so he had a clear view to the back barn. My guests had come and parked where, you know, every time I go out there, I always look back there. We had a clear view to the back barn. There was no smoke. There was nothing untoward. Everything was absolutely as it should be. <clears throat> nothing flammable is stored back there other than, of course, we have the fuel and the propane and the motorhome. All systems were clear. Everything's fine. No worries. And um, I, I had asked my son when he was shopping, getting a few things for me because he was coming up from Salt Lake City, sent him a text. Hey, get some solo cups while you're out there. So he gets here and I said, hey, did you get the solo cups? No, I didn't see your text till I left the store. My girlfriend says, yeah, that's a typical guy maneuver. So we kind of chuckled. And my <laughs> other son went to the guest house and brought a few of them that we had sitting there. But that he, he realized that wouldn't be enough to, you know, for everybody to use all day without having to wash them out and all that. So he also knows I keep the motorhome fully stocked. And he went back there and looked for some and my, and his brother saw him go in there. He had nothing in his, he wasn't carrying anything out there, nothing in his pockets. I mean, just, he, you know, both just walking out to the motorhome and he went in there and looked for solo cups. I, as I said, I had emptied it out for winter service and he came out like 30 seconds later, you know, opened three drawers out. He went. And his brother recalls because he said, I reminded him, close the door behind you. And he closed the door about 30 seconds passed. And then he came back out here and we we're sitting down and I came inside to get the drinks. And that's when he had gone into my, into a part of the house um, on my side where he could see down the Canyon, which is going North South. And he started screaming about the smoke. And that's when we went out and we saw that. So there was nothing going on from after he had looked at there. There was no smoke. There was nothing. And we're trying to figure out what had happened. And of course, one of the sheriffs is saying, and now the investigation points to him because, you know, I will tell you he's autistic. And immediately they start saying, what were you doing in there? Okay, well, the fire started right after you left. What did you do in there? What did you do in there? And I said, first of all, back off. He's autistic. And he said, I went in there to look for cups. What did you do in there? I opened the drawers and looked for cups. And then it became, where did you see the smoke? What were you doing at the time? Oh, you had your shoes off. Where did you put your shoes on? And I let them ask these questions once because here's what happens when you answer these questions. This is why, again, you never talk to police. The next time they would question him, which I would not allow, uh, they never asked anyway. But here's the thing, as an example, I put my shoes on in the house before I, I ran out to the fire. Let's say they question him again a week later. When did you put your shoes on? Oh, I went outside and put them on on the porch. Oh, you lied to us. So a simple oh. bit of confused information is what can trip you up. That's why they ask these questions. So you're getting a little free legal advice on this podcast. It's one-stop shopping, right? So yeah. here's the problem. If you give them that information, and you make an error, albeit as innocent as it can be, they are going to treat you like a suspect. And that was what they did for a while. And, you know, the fire was, was uh, claimed to be undetermined, uh, originating from the motorhome. And the reason they couldn't pin it on what we're going to talk about here was a, a manufacturer defect 
was because the thing was such an absolute, uh, you know, there, there was literally nothing left of it, uh, just a small shell of the cab and all bits of wires, everything electronic, even the motor, you know, the engine was, was a pile of just aluminum underneath it. It was just, there was nothing to investigate. So all they could say was where it originated, but but not how. So my son came to me and we were talking out in the field. Uh, the fire was extinguished. We could smell the smoke. It was a beautiful starry night. And he said, I know they were focusing on my brother, but I know for a fact he couldn't have done it because I saw him go in and come right out. And then a few minutes later, I heard a, it was an explosion. And he said, mama, it was an explosion. And now I'm afraid to be here. I don't know what caused it. I'm afraid to be on this property. So we got through the night. I don't want to make night. light of that, but when you described yeah. that explosion on your podcast, it sounded like uh, watching news on Fox News or any of these cable news company channels. Yeah. Like, We're going to go into this yeah. story now. <laughs> <laughs> so he's in the motorsports industry and his, he, he started getting calls and they said, are you aware of a very well-known issue with Ford and electrical fires? And so we started doing some research and I have um, one, one link was from a law firm. So what happened now, there was initial recall of 7.9 million vehicles. Again, this is about a defective ignition switch that can short circuit and start fires. So, October, now fast forwarding to 2009, Ford Motor Company announced that at least six of the recalls for defective cruise control deactivation switches suffered from the same failure mode as the earlier switch. So this is the one we're talking about, 1996. So this is the switch that's continually powered. Well, why is it continually powered? Because the federal government mandated that there always be power going to the brake system. So Apparently now, the, a lot of the vehicles that are equipped with this cruise control device used to maintain a constant speed, how do we turn off a cruise control device? You tap on the brakes. So this uh, SCDS, it's called, which is the speed control deactivation switch, is located under the hood. And here's the problem. It's attached to the brake master cylinder on one end and connected to the cruise control on the other. Because remember, we always have to have hot switch uh, power to the brake lights from the brake pedal. So the cruise control switch now is wired through the same electrical circuit that's used to power the vehicle's brake lights. Again, remember, according to federal law, and please cite for me the constitutional authority to regulate vehicles, and it ain't the Commerce Clause, the electrical circuit controlling the brake lights have to be powered at all times. And as I said, this is so the brake lights will function uh, even if it's parked. And this is sharing a switch with the cruise control switch. So the cruise control switch is also powered at all times. Continuously powered switch sitting right next to a reservoir of flammable fluid. The problem occurs now over time, and this was a 2006. Every time you put, uh, you, every time you apply the brakes, you have a vacuum pressure on a seal in the switch. The seal can fail, and I live where it gets to be 25 below. The cold, I'm sure, gets to this. When the seal fails, you have brake fluid that can leak into the switch, which causes corrosion, 
the corrosion then can cause the switch to overheat and ignite a fire. So now you have, you know, fire or you have a short where it's uh, accessible to brake fluid from the master cylinder. And that is the whoop that we heard. And uh, it, it says here, this can cause fire even days after the engine has been turned off thanks to this continuously powered switch. The RV had been parked there for a few weeks, but the day before I had moved it to clean out the tanks. And they say that the fires can occur hours after they park the vehicle and turn off the ignition. They can occur anywhere the car is parked. When uh, our friends started calling us, one of my friends said, yeah, my dad knows eight guys this happened to with Fords. It attacked, and this has to do with all of their vehicles, even the motorhomes, the Econoline, which is used to make motorhomes and ambulances. So this is uh, when I also was talking to the, the salvage yard that this was going to go to. She said, you know, that's really interesting. We get a lot of Fords that just went up in flames. So this is still an issue. They said that this has affected almost 15 million vehicles and a lot of cars did not make it through the recalls. We never got a recall notice. The VIN for my vehicle was never subject to a, a recall. Therefore, my insurance company didn't want to do any digging into the cause of this or what our witness testimony was. You know, when this fire started, the body of the living area of the motorhome was completely intact. The windows were intact. No smoke, no flames were coming from the interior living space of the vehicle. In fact, it was so intact. My son and I, for a nanosecond, thought, I wonder if we can get it out. Of no. <laughs> and so it couldn't have started inside. Everything points to this. There was nothing flammable, nothing that could have started that fire anywhere near it. I always kept the ground clear so nothing would start a fire around it. So, you know, a lot of homes are getting destroyed because of this, severe burns, people are dying. And in fact, the law firm that I first spoke to about this, they only take wrongful, long, uh, wrongful death suits. So I'm in, I'm in contact with one attorney uh, who might help us with the property loss and that, you know, I did have, I do have insurance. I was underinsured because of the quality of those exterior barns, but the rate, but the reason I, I had them underinsured was financial for run, one reason. I wasn't going to replace them with a barn that would have been very expensive. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with that back property. And I figured it was an acceptable risk. Again, it wasn't uninsured, it was underinsured. I was factoring in the likelihood of a wildfire and that sort of thing. What I didn't account for was a manufacturer's defect on the, on the part of Ford Motorsports. So I am, I am um, pursuing and I hope I can get somebody to work with me to uh, get my, you know, my true losses covered. I'm gonna ask a stupid question. But it's a question I always ask when things like this come up. Uh, just trying to educate myself. I, I don't want to sound argumentative, but I know several people, and I know you do too, we all do, that drive Fords. In fact, I'm going to be honest and say one of my all-time favorite Ford trucks is the F-150s, especially those that were made in the late 90s, early 2000s. They're extremely spacious. How come, and I believe what you're telling me, because you've obviously found it on reliable sources, but how come I don't know anybody who's had a Ford that had this happen? Obviously, they're out there because you just quoted a bunch of statistics 
Yeah, you said it affected over close to 15 million people. How come I don't know? Why is this the first time I've heard of it? 15 million. Think of how many Fords overall have been produced, right? So uh, the no. fact that you personally don't know anybody really uh, doesn't mean much. You, you do now, by the way. Yes, I do. And, yep. and uh, you know, I have a friend that said that he personally knew of eight people on my Facebook pages. A friend of mine said, yeah, that happened to a friend of his. Uh, they went to bed at night and they got up in the morning and it was uh, completely incinerated in their driveway. Yeah, I, I guess my mind just goes there because I'm thinking, what do these people I know, what did they do to not have that happen or whatever? I guess that's just where my mind goes sometimes when I hear these statistics. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe they've just been lucky. And I actually do yeah. own a, an F-150. I think it's a 2008. And my son is using that for his work. So we'd like to replace that. What I also yeah. want to do is have it have it inspected to make sure that we don't have that part on that vehicle. So get that checked. And I would also tell people, if you have motorhomes, you see a lot of people with their motorhomes, their camper trailers, which obviously aren't going to have that same issue, but plugged in and, and right up next to their house. I would never do that again with a motorhome and uh, give yourself, this is another reason why I'm so thankful that I did not park it next to my house. If I ever had another one, I would never park it close to my home again. It would be off somewhere separate, probably in a steel building where it couldn't affect other properties uh, as well. I would never get another motor home. I'm looking to get a smaller camper because I always found it difficult to get to a lot of the places, you know, where I like to go. But I would want to encourage people to really understand, because I know we're out of time, to really understand the kind of insurance they have. And be aware that let's say you have a, a barn structure that would say cost 75 or $150,000 to replace. What would have happened to me is I would have gotten half of the money up front and I would have had to have come up with the rest of the money to get it built. I want people to understand the nature of insurance coverage because I really wasn't aware of this. Had I insured my building for say $150,000 uh, loss, I would have gotten $75,000 and I would not have gotten the rest until it was completed so one of, one of many things that would have had to have happened, I would have had to have come up with the money up front to get it replaced or borrowed it, or I would have had to um, not get compensated and only gotten half of it, even though my premiums should have covered me for $150,000. I've been trying to get somebody to build a back structure there and talk to me about a new building and converting that, you know, shoring it up for two years because I'm so remote. And then with gas prices, it's impossible. So factor in the amount of insurance that you're going to need. Are you planning to rebuild what you're going to do with that property? So as it is, um, I, got, I got a decent amount of money that covered it, but it doesn't, it's not gonna cover it to rebuild because I don't wanna build back there um, again anyway. I have some other plans. So you know, just be sure of what you're getting into. But what I did do for what I have left I doubled the coverage for my home because they also factor into your coverage the cost of cleanup. That would have taken up fully 50% of my payout had I used their contractors. So I found some guys local in my community who did it for $5,000 as opposed to 15 or 20 with uh, you know about $30,000 worth of coverage. So Think about what it's going to cost to clean up. And then I, so I upped the insurance for my home from 286 to half a million. 
And then for other structures, the only quote other structure I have left now is a combination of my guest house, workshop and garage. I booted that up to 386 because you have to figure the cost now of getting materials, the cost of labor, as well as the cost of cleanup. So give yourself a heads up. And if you're not as protected as you think you are, call your insurance company and fix it because you will regret it. Take pictures of everything of value. Go through your home today. Take pictures of your furniture. Take pictures of what's valuable to you. If you have valuable jewelry that isn't in a fireproof safe, take pictures of that and then uh, ensure that separately. And just make sure you're covered. So, yeah, that's good advice. And I had no idea that you had to pay the insurance and then you had to, uh, my understanding, listen to one of your listening to one of your podcasts. I think it was podcast number 61, I believe, on the Red Hot Chili Pepper that you had to pay the premium. And then I think the you had to, like you said, pay whatever you had to pay and then they would reimburse you or something to that effect. Yeah, I would have gotten, say, half the amount to rebuild the barn. If it, mm -hmm. I think I was insured to replace something up to $75,000 is what they said to rebuild. I had it, I had it insured for about 30. The barn was in really, I, I never, you know, I never liked it. Doesn't mean I burned it up, but uh, I wasn't planning on getting that thing, you know, rebuilt or whatever. I insured it for the amount I did for the reasons I did. And um, I would I would have had to have come up with that same amount of money. I would have gotten about that money because they said it would be seventy five thousand to fix. So I would have gotten the same payout and then had to pay the rest to get the you know coverage that I had I had bargained for, meaning up to seventy five thousand. So I still got the you know about thirty thousand or so, and didn't have to pay the extra money. I want to go back to the Ford issue real quick. Are there other manufacturers with this issue? Because obviously, if the government says that your brake lights have to be on, even if you're not running the car, how come Chevy or some of these other manufacturers haven't had this issue that we know of? This is a switch that's used by Ford. And this is, you know, I don't know if the others have done this because Ford, in their infinite wisdom, decided to you know, have continuously running power next to brake fluid. How, how smart is that? It's a $21 part. And, uh, and the other thing is, remember this, this is why I almost didn't want to get a Ford and I end up ha having a motorhome and also an F-150. But I remember, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but I remember in, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s, this made, this made national headlines where a, a memo, I believe it was either from assessment or legal department of Ford, when they were, they were going to have to have a massive recall to replace a very inexpensive part. But the recall was so extensive, their legal department said it's actually more cost effective to pay out wrongful death suits than it is to replace the part. That made national headlines. It was on the news everywhere. The only thing I remember is the Firestone issue with Ford. The Firestone tires were going out and Ford got into some trouble with that, as I recall. Yeah, that and I, I seem to remember something about that as well. Yeah, I don't remember the whole story, but uh, let me just ask you this. I don't want to take up your whole time. We, I know you're busy. Are there motorhomes out there that you think if someone's really into buying a motorhome, are there motorhomes out there that are 
safe to buy because of, I know Ford makes the chassis for the ones that you bought. Are there ones that are safe to buy, like the Winnebago? You know, and- apparently this issue again was from you know it, it was from a while ago. Mine here is why my insurance company didn't want to pursue this. They said it was not subject to a recall, and as I told my older son, yeah, but this is a couple years after the years they said this was an issue, and he said, what do you think they do? with all the chassis that they've already re, that they've already you know manufactured and wait to be ordered by these companies you know ecoline the 40 ecoline um and put out for that for the ambulances and for the um you know the 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 motors the motorhome industry they're already made he goes do you really think they're going to go back through all those and replace those parts no they're just sending them out you know that's that's the only thing we can come up with nothing else makes sense from that and so, you know, for us to pursue this, now we've got to get, you know, manufacturer's records, see what was done on this. And again, like I said, I'm in contact with an attorney and we're going to see if we can, we can pursue this. But it's very common and it's a part that's known to Ford. It's a $21 part. And, and uh, I, another thing that I came across that people said to worry about was a, a refrigerator called Norcold. And that had had a product defect as well where it was causing the cooling unit to corrode and leak propane, which is also an issue. So if you have one of those Norcolds, check it out. But this is an older one. Hopefully they've replaced it. If you do have a Ford and it's in that era or even afterwards, just take it to a mechanic and a, you know somebody that is familiar with Fords and make sure it doesn't have that switch. And if it does, have them have them do something else, have them replace it. Yeah, good plan. And or disconnect your cruise control. I don't know what else to do, but you know, every time you tap those brakes, that that seals getting challenged, and then combine that with the you know weather where I live, and that could also you know be impacted if you live in extreme heat. So over time, you know, this is wear and tear, and you get things these things checked out. You know, this is never this is never inspected. Nobody inspects this stuff. Yeah. Well, that's why I asked if there was other motorhomes out there that are, do not have the Ford chassis that are safe to buy uh, in case somebody out there listening is so bent on buying a motorhome. And I understand why. Yeah, they're, they're a lot of fun. Just get that checked and make sure they don't have that part. Yep. Well, Suzanne, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know it's been a long time in coming and I really enjoy doing the podcast. Is there anything else though that, I haven't gone over that you want to go over. No, I think this was a great conversation. I hope it helps people and anybody that cares to, please again, check my website out, uh, SuzanneCSherman.com. You'll find links to the Wasatch Report as well as the Red Hot Chili Prepper podcast, C-H-I-L-L-Y, and links to my four books, Federalism, How Decentralization Can Save America, Two books in my survival series, the Red Hot Chili Pepper Survival Series, are uh, food preservation strategies and doomsday dining recipes from Camp Apocalypse. And last but not least, the Lost Frontier Handbook, Learn the Ways of the Pioneers. It is your ultimate guide to self self. We're going to talk about that book too, by the way, on another Can't wait. I love coming on with you. (laughs) Yeah. All right, folks, we'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the Canning Plus 7 podcast with your host, Kevin Williams, and guest, Suzanne C. Sherman. To get a hold of me, go to Facebook and do a search on Canning Plus 7. That's C-A-N-N-I-N-G, the plus sign, and the number 7.